Today in the podcast, we're having a conversation about hybrid communication. My guest is communication expert and my good friend, Mel Kettle. She told me that while many organizations right now have been much more intentional around the role of technology in hybrid working, many haven't thought as intentionally around their communication. Today, I give Mel a call to learn more about what we can do to communicate better in this new world of work. Do it live! Do it live! I'll write it and we'll do it live! 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, liftoff! Joining me on the podcast is Mel Kettle, an expert at communication that builds trust. She understands how to create strategies that have immediate, meaningful impact. With more than two decades of experience in strategic communication and leadership and a unique educational combination of a master of business marketing and a master of public health, Mel is a valuable asset to leaders and teams that want to achieve real connection and sustained engagement. If you talk to her clients, they'll rave about Mel's sharp insight, her ability to simplify the complex and her capacity to mobilize people and ideas so that they can increase their visibility and influence. She's the host of the podcast, This Connected life and the author of The Social Association. Her second book, Connected Leadership, Starts With You, is due out in late 2021. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Mel. Oh, so great to be here. It's so good to see you again, even if we are through a Zoom. <laughs> I know, I know. We've we've kind of been in each other's world for a little while and um, I'm obviously a huge fan of you just as a person as well as all the work that you do. Um, so I've been looking forward to introducing you to some of the people that I know through the podcast. That's so kind of you. I'm a huge fan of yours and your work as well. So let's just have a little mutual love appreciation here. <laughs> it, is a bit, it is that little moment. Hey, I want to give people a chance to get to know, obviously, some of the, the great work that you do. But one of the things I ask every one of my guests is what I would say is three fast facts, which is where were you born? What was your very first job? And what do you do now? Ah, So I was born in Canada, um, in Ottawa. And my father was English. My mother was Australian. They met in Vancouver, got married, traveled across the country and had me. Um, I, my first job. Yeah. So not a lot of people know that. Um, my first job. I didn't, I didn't know that. I've known you for a few years and I didn't know that that at all. (laughs) Yeah. So we moved to Australia permanently when I was seven and, um, I've lived in Canada a few times in my twenties and, but I've been pretty much settled in Australia since I was 25, 26 with no interest in another cold winter. So, <laughs> and, and which leads me nicely into my first job. So my first job was when I was in high school, I did, um, worked on the reception desk in the consulting firm that my dad worked for um, on the, in the school holidays when their receptionist would go on holidays. And there was one uni holiday when they needed a few extra people to do a study at Jindabyne. And all we had to do was count the cars and the people that were going into the ski tube at um, Smiggins Blue Cow. I can't even remember. It was so long ago. So (laughs) I had a week, all expenses paid, holiday to the snow, and I counted people on a clicker. But the weather was so atrocious that we only did one day (laughs) out of the seven. (laughs) And so the rest of the time we just lolled around this amazing house in Jindabyne. What a dream. What a dream first job. Took advantage of the spa, the sauna, went to a couple of shows at the Jindy Hotel and um, I got paid. So, and I managed to do a uni assignment at the same time. So it was great. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. So many things, which I mean, and you, you're a far, uh, you've, you've kind of come a long way since working in, in the ski fields to what, what do you do now? Give us a bit of a snapshot of, of you and your practice. So these days I work with leaders, teams and organisations to help them communicate so they create real connection and sustained engagement. And I work with them to um, help them connect with themselves first to make sure they look after themselves and then how do they engage to connect and connect with their people, so their staff, their customers, their suppliers, their members if they're an association, their volunteers if they have, um, if they're a non-profit. You're speaking my language, Mel, because anything <laughs> communication related is 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 my jam and I can't wait to kind of dive into the conversation um, about what you're seeing and what you're noticing um, at the moment. Just before we jump into that, I was listening to your podcast episode with Paul Matthews, where you were both talking about how your first proper jobs were event management. My first job <laughs> when I finished uni was also organising conferences and event management. And so, is there a trend? Um, I think there might is be. Is it a thing? Yeah. Yeah, I think there might be. So I learned an enormous amount from that job. I don't ever need to go back to it again, but um, it was great <laughs> at the time. <laughs> One of the things I find is maybe you're forced into it in event management because you are you are literally mobilizing big teams of people in different kind of many different moving parts and you're kind of forced into this world of, of I guess, helping people to mobilize, uh, mobilize behind an idea. So maybe there's some common threads between all of that. I'd be interested to hear other people that are out there in the kind of comm space and whether or not they started out in a similar direction. It was certainly a job that taught me how to communicate across a broad range of people. So I, my first job, I would, there was, it was a small events management company. We ran association, we ran events and conferences for associations with a few corporates, but very few. And I'll never forget running um, a conference for the ASX where the speakers were CEOs of the big banks, the telcos and other, you know, huge blue chip companies in Australia. And the CEO of a bank was on stage doing a rehearsal and he just looked a bit lost. And I said to him, would you like me to help you with your PowerPoint? And he said, yes, I don't know what to do. My secretary has always done this for me, but I can't have her up on stage with me and I don't have a clue what I'm meant to be doing. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, good on you for admitting that you've got no idea. Um, but this was in the mid-90s and so PowerPoint was a fairly new technology back then and I didn't really know what I was doing either, but we kind of winged it between the two of us and he looked didn't look like an idiot when he presented to the 500 people in the room. So that was a good outcome mm. for us all. <laughs> One of the things that I find I'm finding at the moment is, you know, if we were to rewind the clock back to say March last year, um, in many ways it was the great mobilization of everybody. So we, we, we kind of, I don't know, maybe not in really kind of having any preparation for it, had to really quickly mobilize an entire workforce um, because of a global pandemic. And, you know, but we're, when by no means kind of, um, coming out of it at the moment, the way things are going, but in in some ways we're at that stage where we're starting to get ready to remobilize people again, which is around what does the new world of work look like? Um, and one of the things I love, obviously, talking to people about is the the communication lens across that, what that looks like, how that you know changes, how that shapes. But before we kind of get there, like, what are some of the things that you're noticing at the moment? Like when you talk to your clients, when you talk to people you work with, what are some of the big themes you're seeing happen right now? So I think when it comes to the new world of work, we need to look at what we used to do. So pre-COVID, how did we work? How do we work now? 
now that we're still in the thick of COVID? And then what do we want to do next? How are our organisations going to gear up to work next? And I'm really interested in the next because I think a lot of people are making assumptions that next will be the same as old. And yet Mm. research from PwC shows that 90% of Australians who work in an administrative type role want to be able to continue working from home at least part-time, you know, forever. And so I think a lot of organisations aren't really ready for that. And I certainly know I've got one client who said to me the other day, if my staff don't want to come back into the office full-time, they can just get another job. Wow. And I thought, oh, that's drastic. It's <laughs> that's very that drastic. Also, yeah. But she said it's a buyer's market right now. And I thought, oh, is it really? Like you've struggled to get good people and you've got good people now, but do you really want to go through that again? And the cost of hiring people that and the impost that that has on your organisation, um, the people that you, your organisation serves, and also the organisational culture and the team dynamic. And then I've got other clients who've said to me, we're really grateful for COVID because it's shown us what we can do in terms of working remotely and working flexibly. And we were looking at having to move into a new office in two years' time. But now we've got so many staff that want to continue working from home at least two days a week, if not more, that we're probably not going to need to get more office space for 10 years. And that includes an enormous growth within that time because we've got so many people. The CEO said to me, I think the only person who wants to be in the office full time is me. (laughs) And so (laughs) he said, I'm happy to be here on my own. (laughs) It's peaceful. I get things done. So they're taking steps to really support and encourage their people to work where they want to in a way that makes sure the job gets done. So they haven't come up with the solution yet that's going to work for them, but they're having conversations and they're asking their staff, what do you want? What's best case scenario? What's worst case scenario? Why do you want to work from home? And how can we as an organisation make sure that we provide a solution that's going to have the right impact on our productivity, our culture, our employee engagement, how we collaborate, how we innovate, and at the same time make sure that we make a profit that is what we're currently doing and then greater into the future. Um, so sorry to cut you off. What, one of the things you, you, when you spoke there, it triggered off in my mind that I saw something recently on um on LinkedIn that Zoom have just kind of renovated their offices. And I was like, that's interesting to me that Mm. a company which is thriving in a new online world of working is putting in office, like physical office spaces. But one of the things they're doing is they've renovated it to be like a a co-share cafe. So it's pretty much revolves, their offices are revolving around a full-time cafe that their employees can come in, eat lunch, eat breakfast, have coffee, and then lots of kind of just different booths set up around for them to be able to work out of there if they just want the community of that. So Mm. I think people are starting to think about what potentially the future of work could look like. They're exploring different ways that we can do it. And I think- you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people. There's lots of conversation around what does the office of the future look like? Mm. What does the teams of the future look like? Lots of this kind of stuff. What do you reckon we're not talking enough about heading into the future? I think we're not talking enough about how we change our work practices so that we still achieve our strategic goals. And the other thing I'm hearing a lot about is a lot of people are talking about hybrid work 
and different ways of work in terms of tech, in terms of tools that you need, in terms of productivity, but no one's really talking about it in terms of how we're going to communicate. And obviously getting the tech right is a part of the communication, but we've all got mobile phones and so we can all at least have a conversation (laughs) using that fairly primitive technology these days. And I just think, are we missing the point? Like, are we forgetting the most important part of work, which is obviously it's the work, but it's the relationships. And there's not a lot of conversation around organisational culture, how we want that to look, what we're going to keep from the old way of working, what we're going to adapt, and what we might do that's completely different. That's a whole new way of getting the results and the outcomes that we've had in the past. And I think a good example of that is the water cooler conversation. So everyone I've spoken to has said we miss the water cooler conversation. We miss those incidental things that you used to learn about people because you could eavesdrop on their phone calls deliberately or otherwise. Um, You could see their reactions when they read an email or when they were just sitting at their desk And it's really difficult to do that on Zoom because when most people join a Zoom call or even an audio call, they're switched on and they're ready to discuss the business at hand. And you don't tend to have that degree of interaction and observation that you might otherwise have. And I was listening to a presentation by um, Fahim, whose last name I can't remember, from Multicultural Australia the other day, and he was saying how they've instigated a a process in their organisation where the last 10 minutes of the hour, so from 50 minutes past the hour to the the next hour, they have a Zoom that anybody can join just to chat about stuff. And it can be having a whinge about the wife, it can be complaining about teaching their kids at home, it can be... um, I don't know, what to have for lunch. It can be something work-related, but most of those conversations are not really work-related. It's more the, I watched Survivor last night on TV, wasn't it amazing? And I really (laughs) like that. And he said sometimes there'll be 10 people who'll join that Zoom and sometimes he'll just be there by himself. But he is there at 10 to the hour, every hour, ready to have a chat with people about whatever they want. Or to listen. The thing that I find, and, and we were having this conversation even before we started the, the podcast recording about so much of our experience in community happens not in the formalized experience, but in the cracks, in those little gaps in between. So maybe it's, you know, walking down a hallway and you run into someone you haven't seen in a couple of weeks and you, you catch up quickly in the hallway. It's, it is the water cooler type of conversations. One of the things I find really personally challenging in Zoom environments to try and recreate that is that it's almost like if we were to put it in a physical environment, you've got 10 people in a room. Um, you can kind of drift off to the side and have a conversation one-on-one in the community of 10. Whereas in Zoom, when you're going, hey, I'm going to say something, it's like I'm now projecting to 10 people and telling my story to 10 people and 10 people yes. are listening at the same time. So as, as much as you can kind of recreate the space, the the context and the, and the kind of um, practices that exist within that space look still slightly different to what we're doing in person, right? Exactly. And I think the other thing is, um, like, I am I have a very expressive face and I've had people say to me when I've been in an office, oh, you don't like that person very much, do you? And I've said, how come? And I've said, because of the expression on your face when you heard them talking. 
and I've gone, right, better practice my poker face. Uh, <laughs> and so you don't get those interpersonal um, connections or interactions or observations either when you're on a Zoom mm. because if there's, like, I know if I'm on a Zoom with someone I don't like, I just turn off the video. And so I can pull as many faces while they're speaking as I want to and they'll <laughs> never see because they can't see my face. Or I'll mute my microphone and I'll mutter things under my breath that, you know, if I was in a meeting, you'd see me eye rolling and you'd see me looking bored and you'd see me tapping my fingers. But on a Zoom, you don't get any of that. And so it's really difficult, I think, for leaders and for organisations to get that understanding of team dynamic and the really basics of culture when you can't see any of those things or hear them. It's so true. I mean, one of the things that, you know, it's obviously highlighted some of the huge gaps that are out there at the moment in terms of um, the things that are really hard to recreate online that you would typically get, in, especially through the lens of communication, things that you can't get um, online that you would get in person. Are, are there some positives? Are there some good things that have come out of this in terms of how it's helped leaders communicate um, or teams communicate um, as a result of the pandemic? Do you think there's some good? I think that Communication is a lot more intentional now. And so it's kind of like, you know, when I go to the doctor, I take a list. And so I go for a specific purpose and then I have a list of half a dozen other things that might have been niggling away at me for the last six months since I last went to the doctor. And I think our communication, like our conversations now are much more intentional because we feel that we don't want to interrupt somebody unless we've got something actually really important to say. So we might have that conversation for a purpose and then go, oh, by the way, I meant to ask you this too. And that's a change, I think. And I don't know, I haven't decided yet whether that's a good change or a bad change, but I think it's probably not a great change. And I don't really know the answer to that. I think it, it, I think organisations need to just experiment to see what's going to work for them. And um, one of my other, another colleague of mine, she's had remote teams for years and She's, I said to her, we actually had a conversation about this just before everything shut down in March last year. And I said to her, how have you made working remotely work? And she said, the one thing I've done for the whole time is I've had an office in Melbourne where all of my staff can come if they want to. And it's been expensive, but they've known that they've had a desk if they've wanted to have it. And I've also, once a quarter for a week, I've just said everybody has to be in the office for that week. And I'll pay to fly people in from wherever they live. And at the time she had people working and living internationally as well as in different parts of Australia because they could. And she said in that week we do strategic planning, we do team building activities, we go out for drinks and dinner once or twice in that week so that we can get to know each other socially. Um, we don't start the formal stuff in the morning early, particularly the morning after we've gone out for a meal together. So if people want to kick on and have a really late night, they can, knowing that they don't need to be in the office until, you know, 10 or 11 the next day. And she said it's great because it means that people have the flexibility to work how they want and when they want. But we've also had really clear conversations around what they need to do in terms of outcome. And so I think one of the things that there's a lot of conversations around or where I've, when I've worked in offices, there were a lot of conversations around timesheets and <laughs> around hours worked. And then there were a lot of conversations around outputs, but there were never really conversations around outcomes. 
And so outputs are one thing, but if they're not right and they're not going to drive you to achieve your strategic objectives, what's the point? And it's the same with timesheets. I can sit in an office for a day, like for eight hours, and achieve nothing. But my boss would have looked at me and gone, good work, you've been here for the whole day. I have moments like those where even now when I'm working, I sit there and I'm maybe working on something Mm. and I'll sit there and I'll stare at my screen and I'll, I'll, you know, just get this mental blank. And then it's been 20-30 minutes and I realize I'm still staring at a blank document, haven't written a word going, that just was a very unproductive time. And yet if you would walk past and kind of make some observations, see me sitting at my desk, you go, gee, Shane's a really hard worker. He's really intently focused there. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. that's kind of the challenge, right? Oh, yeah. So my husband, used, he's an accountant um, and he used to work for an organisation as an in-house management accountant. And when he he was made redundant and one of the reasons they gave him was that he always left the office at five o'clock. And he said, but I get all my job done. He said, I turn up at seven thinking to, to himself and you don't turn up before 10. <laughs> Yeah. He said, I'm here at 7, 7.30, I do a full day's work, I take a short lunch break, and I'm, ahead, I'm up to date with every single thing I have to do. And being a management accountant, he said, all of my reports are on time, all the people I have to build relationships with know what they need to do, they all deliver their work on time so I can get mine done on time. What, what do you want me to stay after 5 o'clock for? And the guy just went, oh, oh, because because it makes me look better that my staff are here late. Which is not what you really want to hear from from someone who's no. leading an organisation. Um, no. what, what do you reckon the fear is? What's what's below the surface of that? Like, I mean, you you coach, you mentor, I coach, we mentor people and we often know that whatever we see, whatever's visible to us is usually mm. the, the surface level issue. There's usually much something much deeper that sits below that. What do you think sitting below the surface of all of this, the desire to want to keep people um, visible, um, rate them based on the output of their work? Like what does all that stem from, you think? I think uh, a lot of it just comes back to lack of trust. I worked in another organisation where the head of a massive business unit that served the whole country said to me one day, I'm so happy all of my senior leadership team now are working out of the Melbourne office. And I looked at this guy and said, but you're a national, you've got a national remit. So if there's a problem in Sydney or in Perth and all your guys are in Melbourne, it's going to take them quite some time to get to each of the, you know, that other city to resolve it. And he's like, oh, but I don't care. This way I can see them. And I think he just had so little trust that people would do things if they weren't under his eye. And I felt really sorry for his team and for him because he was very old school in his way of thinking and he just didn't see the point in changing. And I wonder if that's a problem. Yeah, I think you, I reckon you've touched on something really important here. Mm. I remember a, a few years ago reading an article about the the important like um, triad between communication, commitment, and trust. And, you know, they were talking about really we we want to drive commitment and we forget that the levers of commitment is communication and trust. And so really I think what what you're putting your finger on here right now when we look at and we say, well, I need to see my people, I need to know that they're doing work, I need to – what they're saying is I I really want to – I need to trust my people that they're going to deliver the outcomes that they're going to deliver – 
and have that ongoing conversation and make sure that the communication is strong so that I can have trust in my people. And if I can get those two things working right, then we'll get the commitment that we need from people and we'll get the the engagement that we need from people. But these two really key ingredients around um, communication and trust, right? Absolutely agree with you. And I think it all comes back down to the relationships and the people. And the more you know your people, the more you will know when they've got an issue or a problem or a challenge that you need to do something about. And I think also with COVID, it's been a really stressful time and there's been a lot of uncertainty, uh, not only around are we going into lockdown or not, but also around job security for a lot of people. And so the more you can do to provide them with certainty or address the fact that you don't know what's going on, but you'll keep people updated as much as possible, And even an update saying, I don't have anything to say, but I said I'd give you a weekly update, so here it is, (laughs) that's reassuring to people. And and I think that a lot of, um, I think a lot of leaders forget that. One of the things that, um, you know, I'm reflecting on at the moment is a conversation I had with someone last year who, who talked about right in the height of what was the pandemic at the time, they were saying their people were probably the most engaged they've ever been. And I, I kind of asked why, and they said, because in those moments, our leaders, our executive leaders were almost forced to the front line and we saw them, they were more visible than they'd ever been. They've communicated more than they've ever communicated before. And you know, people you might hear from typically once every couple of months, now all of a sudden they were talking almost daily and they were showing up consistently and they were checking in. And, you know, and I think in some ways we're kind of moving back out of that kind of, um, really high touch environment. The danger is that we go all the way back to, you know, the pendulum swings too far back the other way where we, we disconnect again or we disengage from people. What are you noticing if, as you look at kind of really great leaders and how they communicate and what they're doing right now, um, do any come to mind? What are they doing? That's kind of, um, that's kind of helping to engage their people with better communication right now. The ones that I'm seeing who are doing a really good job are still front and center. And mm. they're, they're there. So they're doing regular ask me anythings on Zoom or whatever their tech platform might be. They've got office hours for their staff to come to them at any time and ask a question. Um, they've got regular written and video comms going out. They're visible on social media as well as the internal social media, so Yammer, Facebook Workplace, whatever that system might be. Um, And they're not making assumptions and taking things for granted. They're frequently asking questions and they're listening to the responses and they're observing behaviours in their organisations and in others. That's some really, really insightful things that if you were to Mm. kind of pause the podcast, rewind it, take notes of people who are listening, some really practical things to to be doing right now. Because again, um, one of the phrases that I often share with with leaders is that you can't follow an invisible leader. And I think one of the dangers in moments like this, when you pull back, you stop communicating, you you stop showing up, you lose that sense of visibility and it makes it really hard for people to know like, where are we going? What are we doing? And do I feel safe? Do I, do I want to engage? How can I engage? Yeah. Uh, it can be really challenging, right? And it, absolutely it can be. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that how trusted your organisation is, a lot of that is linked to how visible your CEO is and how trusted the CEO is. And then second from that is 
Research from DDI Recruitment Agency shows that CEOs who have a strong social media presence, so LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, you know, not all of them, but one or two, they're seen to be more trusted than CEOs who do not have a strong social media presence. And so if you're a CEO or aspiring to be a CEO and your social media presence isn't there, I think you need to think about why not and look at what you can do to make it to make yourself more visible because CEOs today are expected to be seen and heard far more than they ever have been at any other time in history. I I agree completely. I think one of the first things to go when things get busy or things come up and things get chaotic is you go, well, social media is the last thing on my list of priorities right now. And it's, and I think we use it through the language of social media is just for my social life. We're actually social media for people in leadership is visibility to their people. It's showing up, it's creating personality, it's creating a sense of presence, and it's ultimately building trust for people, uh, people are following you. And it's also demonstrating your values because people can learn a lot from a LinkedIn post or a tweet. Um, and even if it shows like even if you do a personal post that shows what you had for breakfast or um, something about you and your family, then people learn from that and people learn things about you as a human. And that's really, really important because people want to do business with people they know, love and trust. And so what is it that you're doing to let people know you so they can love you and trust you? So one of the things that I'm thinking about, obviously, you know, I wouldn't say that people right now are not thinking about communication in a new world of work or a new hybrid way of working. I would say they're thinking of small pieces of of that much bigger picture that they could be looking at. And we've touched on a couple. So maybe the communication aspect that they're looking at is they're looking at the tech, which is how do we keep our people connected through tech? So they're using Teams or they're using Yammer or they're using their platforms. That's one element of communication. The other one is there, you know, there may be, you know, I've heard quite a few people doing, you know, that kind of office hours, you know, kind of situation. Maybe it's like a Friday night drinks on Zoom or something like that. They're all kind of very observable, very kind of, you know, popular things to be doing right now. What do you think of the things that, you know, are maybe not happening or things that we could be doing that maybe are not the obvious things that we could be doing to kind of increase and, and um, uh, you know, strengthen our communication? I think we need to be reviewing our strategy. So if your communication strategy was written before COVID, is it relevant still? And maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe, but maybe it's not. Or maybe elements of it need to be changed. Um, and the other thing I think is reviewing your audience. And so reviewing the people who your communication strategy is targeted at, how have they changed and is the information that they want from you the same as it was when you originally wrote that strategy? And if it's not, then what do they need now and what do they want now? And not only is the message the same, but is your audience the same? So a lot of companies have made a lot of changes to their services and products over the last 18 months. And are you still offering what you used to offer from an external perspective and from an internal perspective, how have your staff changed? What do they want now? What do they expect from you? How's your organizational culture changing and how does that impact on your message and your communication strategy more broadly? 
I had a conversation um, with a mutual friend of ours, um, Colin Ellis, on the podcast just recently, and he was talking a lot about this through the lens of culture. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, essentially, have you created a an updated kind of playbook for how mm-hmm. we operate as a team or how we operate as an organization? Because in many ways, like, and you, you touched on it briefly, is that some things may stay exactly the same regardless of whether we're in the office, whether we're working from home, whether we're working remotely, whatever that looks like, could be identical. However, some things may have dramatically changed and we're still operating to an old playbook. And do you think the same is true of the, the way that we communicate? Oh, absolutely it is. You know, if you had used to have a weekly team huddle in the office at 9 o'clock on a Monday morning, what do you do now? Because if you've got, if you're in lockdown and you have a responsibility for helping your kids with school, 9am on a Monday morning, that might not be a very good time for a lot of your staff. And I think it's, it's looking at, like, I've spoken a lot about this quite a lot with a few of my clients. And I've said, looking at your organizational culture, what are you tweaking and what are you changing? And then what are you just getting rid of? Because it no longer serves anybody. And it was one of those things that you can just go, thank God we haven't got to think about this anymore or do this anymore. That last one's a big one, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, But the other thing, like I used to work in an organisation where every Friday afternoon the CEO would bring a drinks trolley around and we'd all have a drink. And (laughs) you can't do that anymore just purely because, well, a lot of organisations don't have an alcohol-free policy, so that's a big change in 25 years since my drinks trolley days. But if your whole staff is working at home or remotely, then you can maybe have a virtual drink. But even, okay, so actually even just alcohol as a policy, if you're in an organisation that has a zero tolerance to alcohol, how do you track that when people are working remotely? How do you, what, what's your dress policy? If, like, I've got friends who used to work in law firms where they had to wear skirts of a certain length and pantyhose. That's not a relevant thing anymore if you're working from home. Like I'm wearing, you know, a T-shirt and tracksuit pants at the moment and you'll never see the tracky dacks on this. <laughs> well, we're on a podcast, so <laughs> you wouldn't see it anyway. But, uh, but you know, what I wear when I'm presenting through Zoom is very different to what I wear when I'm presenting on a stage in front of people. And it's the same when we're on a Zoom for work. Like I've done Zooms for work in my pyjamas because I've had to do calls at 5 a.m., it's like, I'm not getting dressed and doing my hair and makeup at 5am, thanks very much. Not when I'm going back to bed at 5.30 when it's over. <laughs> but another friend of mine turned up to a work Zoom call on a Tuesday afternoon and there was a guy on the call who was shirtless. So is that appropriate? Possibly Definitely not. Definitely not in, in, my, in my perspective. <laughs> Probably but not. The thing, that I, the thing that I think you're touching on here, which I think is, is really, really helpful for people, is that what assumptions are we making about the way people like to work that haven't been tested or haven't been checked since we went into a new way of working and what might need to change again when we come out and and kind of find a new middle ground? So, I mean, the the questions around, um, you know, uh, the homeschooling or what times are our meeting at uh, what time are our meetings that one stood out to me is mm. I never even reflected on like if you were to look at your weekly schedule has the schedule changed from when you were working in the office to when you're working remotely or is it just because it's always been a, a 9 a.m meeting on Tuesdays it just is a standing 9 a.m meeting like that's just even a really practical thing that a person can reflect on 
Um, even, you know, maybe think about emails. Like when are you um, sending emails out in terms mm. of your communication? Is it like, well, I've just got a, a particular report that's due at this time or a, an email that goes out at this time. What does that now say in the different way that we're working? Yeah, exactly. I think it was Heritage Bank who came out last year in July and said, we've noticed that our staff are way more exhausted than they should be. And so we're making a few changes around meetings. So there'll be no meetings and I'm, I'm, this is not correct, but they said, for example, there'll be no meetings between, I think, 12 and 2 every day. There'll be no meetings before 9.30 in the morning, and every meeting has to be over by 4 p.m. And on Fridays, there will never be a meeting. because when And you have to have a 10-minute gap in between meetings for people to go to the toilet, get a cup of tea, see their kids, kiss their husband, you know, do whatever has to be done, answer an email, um, because they were said people were just going from back-to-back meetings and from Zoom to Zoom to Zoom, and by lunchtime they were exhausted but the, and they weren't getting lunch because there were so many meetings over lunch. And I thought, what a clever policy to put in place because that shows that you understand the challenges that your staff are going through at the moment with all these Zoom meetings. And I just think more organisations need to think about those things. I think Atlassian yeah. has a meeting-free Monday so that people can get do some deep work and do the administrative work that needs to be done as a part of a job. Mm. I have a friend of mine who is the managing director of a pharmaceutical company here in Melbourne, and she announced that they were blocking off all, like everybody's calendars were blocked off between 12 and 2 um, mm. as meeting-free zones because they were having conversations with people who were really struggling to schedule meetings so that they were always at their desk over lunch. They were eating at their desk. And so they said basically between 12 and 2, at some point, get up and move away from your desk and go have some lunch that's yeah. not seated at your desk. And for them, that was really important. I think one of the things that I'm, I'm learning from this conversation is that there's lots of things that we could be doing, um, especially whether it's around culture, whether it's around communication, to help us understand what, what do our people need from us right now. And rather than thinking to yourself, well, what's the answer here? Um, what do I need to be doing? What are some of the strategies I need to be adopting? What I'm hearing out of this is like, maybe it's just better to ask the question, like actually ask your team, what do we need? Ask ourselves, what do we need to change? What do we need to tweak? What do we need to get rid of? Like, is it just about asking better questions in all of this? I think that's a key part of it. And I think it's asking the question through the lens of being flexible. Um, Because we talk a lot about flexible workplaces, but some workplaces, there's no opportunity to be flexible. So because you have to be in the office at a certain time or you have to be um, working certain hours, but there's what are the workarounds if that's your organisation? So to give you an example, I used to head up a really busy communications unit in government and we had to have somebody in the office who could answer the phone Monday to Friday from 8 till 6. Now, in government, our office hours were not, like we weren't expected to work 8 till 6, but I had to have one of my 12 staff had to be in there at eight every morning and another one had to be there till six every afternoon. And I just said to them, we had two teams and I said, radio, um, we've got a week A and we've got week B in week A it's team one in week B it's team two. I don't care who's here. You don't have to actually do anything to respond to the media inquiry, but you just have to take a message and then let them know that the relevant person will be in the office. I don't know at nine 30 and you'll pass it on. There was never anything that urgent. And if there was, call me. And it worked really well because it gave them an opportunity to create their own flexible work environment, knowing what they needed to be doing to get the right outcomes that we needed. But at the same time, it gave them 
a sense of control over their day. And I think that's something that we need to be giving back to people as much as possible is that sense of control. Because one of the things that COVID has taken from us is that feeling of I can control my life because you can't <laughs> so often. And there's big things you can't control. Like I'm in um, southeast Queensland and we're in lockdown. And while we think we'll be out of it on Sunday afternoon, realistically, I don't think we will be. And so how do you get through that mental hurdle of, oh, I don't know what we're doing and so I don't really want to do anything as opposed to I can control, you know, A, B, C and D. That comes back almost to the start of this conversation where we were ultimately bringing up this issue of trust. Like if we're going to give control to our people and as leaders give control to the people on our teams, we've got to trust that they're adults and they know how to make decisions that ultimately produce the best outcomes. Well, surely we hire people because of their skill and talent. <laughs> Don't you want them mm. to grow and for that to be nurtured? And if you didn't, if you don't trust them, then why did you even hire them in the first place? That's something that I just don't understand. Like the number of people who seem to not trust their staff, like, well, you hired them. So are you not backing yourself? Like, why aren't you backing yourself with that decision? And we don't always get it right. But, you know, give them an opportunity to fail rather than assuming they're going to. <laughs> and if they do, look at what you can do differently the next time so it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Now, this has been such a helpful conversation. I'm reflecting on on really my big takeaways from this is just this idea of like treat people like adults in, who maybe in many ways are feeling like they've lost their control. Just have the conversation that empowers them to, to actually give feedback and input into what we need to stop doing, what we need to tweak or change or what we need to just get rid of and start to ask questions of them and also questions of yourself. Again, what, what do we need to do and what do we need to change or what do we need to stop yeah. doing yeah. to make sure that the environment that we're stepping into is one that um, is, is maximizing everybody's potential. Um, and ultimately, at the end of the day, it's going to come down to trusting that people um, are adults and grown-ups that they can make decisions that are in the best interest of the direction that we're going. Absolutely. Um, what would you say is like a practical thing that you'd leave people with, like for a leader right now that's trying to really sharpen the way that they're communicating with their team or their people? What's kind of one kind of practical tip that you'd leave them with? My favourite question that I give to all of my clients is to say to your staff, what is it that you need from me right now to do your job? What is it that you need from me right now so your job is easier? And what is it that you need from me right now to make your job better? Wow. And sometimes the answer might be I need a new chair or I need better internet. Sometimes it might be I need some training. And sometimes it might just be just leave me alone to do what I need to do. I know what I need to do. <laughs> I want to have a conversation with you for 10 minutes once a week about where things are at and just let me get on with it. Or it might be, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing. Can we have half an hour every day for the next two weeks so that I can get on top of it? Yeah, who, who'd have thought it just comes back to having a really open and honest conversation. Yeah. It's always the best way um, forward. Um, hey, Mel, you do a whole bunch of things. You do mentoring, you do strategy work, you do speaking, you're a coach. It's, it's all kinds of things that you do. What, what's the best way for people to be able to connect with you? Oh, through my website, melkettle.com. Um, had to think about that for a sec. <laughs> What's my name? <laughs> um, I'm very active on Twitter. It's my favorite social media platform and my handle is at Mel Kettle. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, but yeah, any of those ways, if you just Google me, I own the first five pages with my name on Google. So 
you'll find me. Perfect. <laughs> That's good. There's not a lot of people who can do that. There's lots of I'm, I, I share mine with a famous golfer. So um, oh. if you can get if you can show up, that's great news for you. Um, I'll put all the links to all your social media in the show notes for people to be able to connect with you and, and definitely would encourage people to reach out because again, like I follow a bunch of your your social media uh, content you put on social media and, and have the utmost respect for what you do and, and more than that, just who you are as a person. It's been such a privilege to be able to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Shane. It's been great to chat with you and to get to know you a little bit better as well. That's it for another week of phone calls with clever people. Thank you so much for taking the time to invest in you by checking out the podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the episodes as they're released. And of course, I'd love to hear how this has added value for you in the reviews. Have a fantastic week.